Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Level up human. The comedy science podcast souping up the homo sapien. Hello and welcome to Level Up Human, where we are on a mission to redesign the human species. Once again, we're recording this in lockdown, so we're doing it over the wire and able to get guests from as far-flung places as Norwich. And I've no idea where you're based, Sally. London. London. Yeah. Rachel. Rachel, where are you based? London. Okay, then I think Norfolk is as exotic as we get. Look, we're on a mission to redesign the species. As always, we are joined by our producer, Rachel Wheely. Hi, Rachel. Hello. How are you? I'm very good. Have your chickens produced anything more? They've produced something really interesting in the last week. I got chickens for lockdown. Uh, if anybody, <gasps> that's such know a good that. idea. It was only it only happened to coincide with it, but yes, we got some chickens and they're wonderful. And this week, we got our first soft-shelled egg. Ooh! Which means that there was no shell. Oh! So I've... it was in its sort of sack, but no actual outside. Shell. Apparently, it means they're low on calcium. Yeah, I'm going to say yeah. you need to give them a bit of grit to eat. Yeah, that's right. Do you have chickens, James? No, we've got chickens in the school down the road that we oh, periodically cool. feed in the holidays and snaffle up their eggs. Well, to that end, the other vet guests you hear here, we're joined by Sally LePage. Hello. Sally is an evolutionary biologist and podcaster. In fact, this might be a good time for you to tell us a bit more because you're currently running a series. Yeah, so I make YouTube videos about biology and evolution and things like that. And I've been doing for the last seven weeks a course on evolution for beginners. So coming up will soon be the the final week of live streaming. So you can learn all about evolution at your own leisure. I love the idea of that. Like evolution for beginners sounds like it's for Archaea. (laughs) Yeah, we're starting our 3.8 billion years ago. And over the course of eight weeks, I'll bring you up to the present day. (laughs) <laughs> that's brilliantly ambitious i love it and we're also joined by james piercy uh james is i think a i'd say a legend among the science communication field in fact you're partly responsible for training me many years ago so if people don't enjoy this it's entirely your fault yeah mostly things seem to be my fault now they, you go through a point where you're kind of good and then you get respected then you get blamed <laughs> I, I don't know where you end up really but but hey <laughs> I'm very cleverly staying at the very, very beginning of that process by not doing any of them. 
<laughs> yeah, that's the best thing, yeah. Could you tell us a bit about what you're doing at John Innes at the moment? So, yeah, so I work half the week at the John Innes Centre, which is a plant and microbial science research institute. Uh, so I help the researchers there talk about their work to ordinary people. Um, so I'm in kind of communications, but my background isn't in biology. So I've been on a steep learning curve and something like an evolution podcast sounds like a good idea for me. I'm actually just started studying A-level biology to try and oh, get cool. myself up to speed a bit. What was your background, if we go back far enough? My degree is chemistry. And that oh, was, was a very long time ago. There were half as many elements when I did my degree. You know, It was a long <laughs> time ago. And I used to like you. There we are, chemist, <laughs> in our midst. Well, our new guests here have brought along some news stories before we get stuck in and redesign our own species. So we want to see what's happening right now. Can we begin with you, Sally? What's the news story you've brought along? Yeah, so I finished my PhD about two years ago now, and I was working on fruit flies, uh, every scientist's favourite thing. I, I mean, I was looking at uh, conflict and mating them and cannibalising them, but some friends in the same lab were also looking at conflict, but from a different perspective, and they've just published last week. We often think about males fighting with each other, um, particularly over access to sex and matings. But my friend Ellie Barth studied female-female aggression because everyone forgets to think about the fact that females can fight with other females too. And so um, after females have mated, they are two to three times more aggressive than virgin females are. And uh, they fight over food. They'll headbutt each other. And what they were able to do, and they published this last week, was get um, uh, artificial intelligence to, so they uh, trained their computer program to see what female fighting looks like, and then get a computer to say when the females were fighting or not fighting. And it turns out that within just a couple of hours after having sex, their aggression just goes through the roof and lasts for weeks. How cool is that? I mean, is it aggression or is this hunger? No, this is aggression. So they are on a patch of food and it's almost like having a little territory. They'll kind of fight each other over the patch of food. So uh, they can be perfectly well fed. I mean, they've done it with starvation as well. But if you take two virgin flies, uh, females at the same level of starvation, they won't fight nearly as much over food as two mated females will. So it's not anything really to do with how much food they have as much as how much they are wanting to fight over the resources because obviously then they've got egg production coming up in their life, which takes a lot of food and nutrition. Well, terrific. James, what have you brought with you? A bit of kind of news and also a little bit of kind of disappointment, actually. I wanted to talk about Le Grand K. So last year we lost the kilogram this kind of artifact, the kilogram in Paris, which defined all of the kilograms all over the world. Sorry, when you say we lost it? Well, we stopped using it. So instead of having this kind of fixed mass uh, in a cupboard somewhere, we went to redefine the kilogram. So now it's linked to Planck constant, which in turn is linked to the, the, uh, the meter in a second. So it's defined now by constant. So if you want to make yourself a kilogram, you just need a calculator and a bunch of numbers rather than reference to this kind of physical thing. Which I, I, you know, it kind of helps because each time you make a copy, it's slightly different. You know, you're going to be billions of a part out and over a few hundred years, your kilogram isn't a kilogram anymore. 
but you still have to call it a kilogram and change everything else in the world. So it makes sense to have this kind of fixed thing uh, onto this kind of mathematics. But I, I'm a bit disappointed. I quite like the idea that there was this lump of thing. So I, I like the idea of it being a bag of sugar. You know, that, <laughs> there is a nostalgia element to it. Yeah. Where, like, I don't know, if some metal hungry mouse came along and nibbled five grams off that kilogram block, that's it, everyone. The kilogram's now five grams lighter. I know, that's a good... but we've all put on weight. So the, 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 the downside. <laughs> but I, I, li- I just like that idea that this stuff is kind of arbitrary. You know, someone just decided what a metre would be and what a kilogram would be. And then we had to make that fit with these kind of physical constants uh, in the world. So there are no round numbers involved because we just kind of make it match. But yeah, I like the idea that somewhere in London, there's a double-decker bus, which is the double-decker bus, which everything is compared against. Yeah. You know? uh, and, there, and there's kind of uh, a one-to-one scale model of Wales in Wales, which kind of, you know, we can match things against. I like that idea. There's one model village somewhere and everything is, that's the blueprint for everything. Yeah, that's the one. That's what we're going to compare against. I've always bothered that because you're always hearing things like, you know, this year, uh, an area of the Amazon the size of Wales burned down, and yet Swansea still stands. <laughs> Barely. Have you been there lately? <laughs> Fantastic. Actually, before we move on, can I ask quickly, just in case you happen to know, uh, how far out was le kilogram from our new maths kilogram? Well, what they did is they defined the new kilogram against Le Grand K. But what they found is that over time, the copies varied by about, I've written it down here somewhere, about 50 parts in a billion. So it was close. So it's, still pretty, use it. it's pretty close, right? You know, if you're <laughs> buying some potatoes from the supermarket, it's neither here nor there. But the point is that each time you make a copy, that variation increases. And we could end up a time, you know, 100 years in the future where you're one spud short. And frankly, that wouldn't be on. <laughs> this has got to stop now. It has. Someone has got to put their foot down. And for the benefit of those listening at home who don't have the pleasure of seeing, you are in fact wearing a Spud t-shirt. I am. Got mashed potatoes, ain't got no T-bone. As I was worried Neil more Young about, once uh, sang. I was worried more about the putting the foot down, because like, that's just imperial. Like, we don't have a <laughs> yeah. for that. And finally, Rachel? My news story is about robots which have been made uh, using 3D printed muscles and the spines of rats, which is, I mean, we knew this was coming. Wait, but, so um, they're robots, but they're made out of bio-living tissue. Yeah, so it's mouse cells, lab-grown mouse cells, which instead of attaching the lab-grown mouse cells to a uh, electrical control system, they've attached them to a part of a rat spine Instead, so you have the dystopian future of having organic robots. All this makes me think is that one day my Hoover will get itself out of the cupboard under my stairs, Hoover the the entire house for me, and then scuttle off into a sewer to have a load of pizza with some degenerate turtles. (laughs) I'm thinking that that is going to be next year's Cabbage Patch doll, right? Every kid is going to want one of these robots to build a home, aren't they? It's got to be the most terrifying children's toy ever invented. <laughs> yeah, I still want one. About what makes this a robot? Because you've got living tissue being grafted onto living or being grown on living tissue. So are they not just creating a new life form rather than creating a robot? Well, I suppose if you control everything that the robot does and then add in some computer programming, 
Then oh, so there are electronics a, within it? There, there will be electronics involved somewhere. Okay. But I think what they're trying to do at the moment is to get the muscles to contract using neurons extended out of this rat's spine. So actually, let's dig deeper into this because you're just making it sound like a kind of remote-controlled, fresh new hell. What's the point of this? Why are they doing it? So the, the point of it is that uh, what they want to do with it is study the progression of diseases in real time. So, for example, motor neuron disease could be studied with this system. And I suppose the more, the more organic matter it uses, the more, the more accurate the study will be to what actually happens in people. It but still it's only, feels creepy. It's only six millimeters long, so our, our tiny rat overlords are not uh, coming for us quite yet. And Colin Kaufman, who did this research, said, eventually something like this could be used for prosthetics, but that would be done using lab-grown human tissues, not rat spines. Nobody will have scary rat spine hands. <laughs> Won't so, they? Have they met the biohacker movement? That's the next Marvel film right there. When scientists say, don't worry, this specific and really, really terrifying thing won't happen, you just think, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. Well, okay, that is what's happening right now. But let's get into the far future. What would our experts like to see on the next stage of humankind? So let's kick off with uh, you, Sally. Can you please tell us, what is your pitch? You're going to try and impress Rachel. Um, Rachel... Before we get in here, I suppose, can you tell us how has your body been letting you down lately so these people know what they're pitching for? My body's actually behaving quite well at the moment, mostly because I'm not putting it through anything too strenuous because we're all still under lockdown. So it's absolutely fine. But you just have to think of me as a sort of like Deborah Meaden in Dungarees. It's like step into the dragon's den and pitch your improvement for the human body and see if you can get me to buy into it. Yeah, Rachel here is acting as judge. So please shoot. What is your suggestion, Sally? Okay, so periods are the worst. They cause physical pain, mental pain, everything is wrong with them and it is a curse to be alive and have a womb. Uh, But the reason we have them is because of conflict between the mother and the embryo. So we can't just get rid of them entirely. So I thought, why not stop them by just going upstream a bit and having... Uh, selective ovulation. So my pitch is that in order to do away with periods, but still able to have healthy pregnancies and everything like that, if you wanted one, instead of our default being we're always fertile unless you do something not to be, instead you choose when you ovulate and therefore no periods. Because either you're not going to ovulate or you're going to be getting pregnant. I can see automatically how you're streamlining this to try and get in Rachel's books rather than mine. But can you can you unpack something here? You said there that there's a conflict between the mother and the embryo, and that is why we have periods. Can you explain what that is? Yes. So as a biologist and as a woman, I think it is safe to say that embryos are the devil's spawn, that are parasites that want to take over the mother's body. And basically, uh, at the very start of pregnancy the embryo wants to bathe in its mother's blood and tries to burrow as deep as possible into the lining of the womb. It's gross, it's horrible, that's the joy of childbirth. Uh, But uh, because of that, um, because human embryos are so selfish and want to dig so far into the womb lining, the endometrium, that we have had to create as um, mothers, 
Uh, we've had to evolve in an arms race against our own children to protect ourselves. So we've built up this incredibly thick lining of the womb, which can be shed so that if the mother's like, oh, I don't know about you, you've got a few genetic abnormalities, which is quite common in humans as as a species, we were quite prone to having genetically bad embryos. So she wants to be able to control the pregnancy to some extent. Obviously, when I'm talking about this, like we're not talking like Texan governor, oh, a woman can control her own body sense. <laughs> but in evolutionary sense, um, because our embryos want to take as many resources from the mother as possible, and obviously the mother doesn't want all of her resources going into this one child. There has been this arms race so that now we're in a state where humans are in the kind of good position amongst animals of being able to somewhat control our pregnancies. So but it check, comes uh, at the expense of a huge amount of pain. Can I just make sure I've got this right then? What a period effectively is, is a womb ejector seat for the embryos we don't want. Exactly. Yes. So oh, it's, the, it's the ejector seat button. So normally, as if we were in the wild as any other normal species, we wouldn't be spending a lot of our time not being pregnant. Mm. Not being pregnant is not a very natural state for an animal to be in. So normally, a lot of animals don't have periods because they're pregnant or lactating, certainly within mammals. But for us, by having the ability to, to eject the embryo, that puts us gives us a bit more control but it also means that you have to have the period even when you're not pregnant it sounds like this is a natural extension of what we've been evolving into all along presumably we would have been pregnant or lactating all the time as well at one point and because we've because we've developed various types of birth control that's not the case anymore so all you're doing is extrapolating that a bit further and saying why don't we work out some way of not having them in the first place Exactly. So because as humans, we're one of the very odd species that doesn't want to maximize our reproductive output, it goes against kind of evolutionary fitness. Individuals that have this would not be at an adaptive advantage in the environment in that they would be having fewer kids and so passing on fewer of their genes. But from a social and personal well-being perspective, it would be nice to have our default state be not fertile, not bleeding and in pain. How do you suggest this should work? So there is induced ovulation in a number of species. So my favourite, there are these lizards where there's now parthenogenesis, so they don't need males at all, but they still need to have sex because the act of having sex induces their bodies to ovulate. And so you have these entire lesbian lizard colonies, which I think are wonderful. So induced ovulation is quite common. And so I would say that we would use a, it would be a hormonal shift. So rather than having our bodies constantly releasing progesterone and that cycle causing ovulation on a 28 day period, We just change the hormones a bit so that there is no ovulation until you take a pill that then creates the hormones that are required to induce this ovulation. What is parthenogenesis? Parthenogenesis is the science word for virgin birth. It's being able to clone yourself. And so instead of having half of your genes in an egg and half of a man's genes in a sperm, they come together. 
then females can just go, hey, I don't fancy a male this time round and put all of their genes into an egg and that egg grows up into a healthy adult. It's a cracking thing. I know it's been discovered in every type of vertebrate now except mammals. And I think it's probably on the way. We're bound to discover it eventually. Maybe there's a proof of concept out there already, Sally, and we don't know about it. Well, I mean, we're getting so far with um, IVF things that, because, uh, for example, part of sperm being useful is the physical act of piercing the egg as a cell is important in stimulating many of the changes required in the egg cell for fertilization and pregnancy. So that's going to be one of the big things we need to work out will be if we want to be parthenogenetic as a species, we'll have to work out that kind of piercing the eggshell mechanism. But I think it'd be great. <laughs> so I, have to, I wonder whether this um, almost kind of optional ovulation would also reduce female-female aggression. <laughs> Two well, birds, one stone, James. Exactly. Quite possibly. you could have the sex but not worry. You've not invested in the next generation, so you don't need to protect it, so you don't need to pull each other's hair out and have a fight in a club. Yeah, there would be far fewer unwanted pregnancies. Everyone, all women can just be a bit more relaxed on a night out because the consequences will be far less dire. Uh, yeah. Okay, but there's there's other alternatives to this. And if your problem's really periods rather than um, fertility as such, yes, the majority of mammals just reabsorb their uterine linings rather than um, ejecting them, as we're sort of saying. Yes. And similarly, you get all sorts of things like um, rabbits, for instance, I know can reabsorb whole embryos. Like if they decide... Decide is a tricky word when it comes to animals, but they can reabsorb and just sort of do it themselves. Why are you going for this option rather than those? So we as humans are quite rare in having periods. It's just the great apes, some bats and elephant shrews that have periods that can't just reabsorb the uterine lining. And it's because, as I was talking about before, human embryos are so goddamn needy. So rabbit embryos are a lot less needy. They don't burrow nearly as far into their mother's womb. And so the, the rabbit mothers haven't needed to take up this arms race. But one of the reasons that we're so needy is because we have a long gestation time. We don't have many offspring at a time. So it's really important that the ones we do invest into are going to be genetically healthy and going to be a good and viable option for us. So rather than, I decided to take as an evolutionary bio the smallest possible change. So rather than causing lots of changes to the embryo and having the embryo has to burrow less, has to change the placenta and how that gives off hormones into the mother's blood, all of these things you would have to change, which would probably change the amount of oxygen that the and sugars that the embryo gets, which would change how big the brain can develop. All of that's far too complicated when all you can do is just say, let's just go one step ahead. So the, okay. the trade-off here is that we have to clone ourselves. No, we is don't have right? to clone ourselves. <laughs> no, I think no. we do. I think the way this works is we have to be lesbians and clone ourselves and then bin off all the men. Let's make it that. I mean, <laughs> as a lesbian, I would be happy with that situation. Uh, but uh, no, I'm thinking to try and have the smallest change possible, but still get rid of periods, but otherwise have these weird embryos that have big brains. I mean, because, yeah, as humans, we are odd in the size of our brains, the length of our pregnancies and things like that. Rather than changing lots of things, which can all go wrong, just do it so that you only have it when it's necessary. My brain is still stuck on the idea that you're telling us about how bats 
or with the other sets that have periods. And I'm just imagining having a period upside down. I do help them. So bats have much smaller blood vessels, so they don't have quite the same volume of blood loss. So it's it's ah. very hard to spot. I mean, you got to pity the poor scientists who were just watching bats all the time because it, it's odd. They actually so it's uh, evolved independently in three groups: primates, um, bats, and elephant trees. And but they all kind of have roughly a month long cycle. So you just got to imagine that there are scientists watching bat colonies in the dark getting pooed on from above, just looking very closely with binoculars to see if they can spot any bleeding. Well, there's, there's a whole other question, actually. Do we know why why the month then? Why is that the, the magic time? I don't know. I, I wonder yeah. if anyone knows. Oh, it's the moon, isn't it? That's why. What? Yes, because women are all lunatics um, and we all follow the cycles <laughs> of the moon. I absolutely love this. I mean, as a bisexual stand-up comedian, the idea of having to be having having to be a lesbian and then and then cloning myself is absolutely perfect. So, yeah, that's definitely on the shortlist. Okay. Simon, don't look confused. So, it's perfect. I've never heard anything better. James, you're going to have to really no, pull I've, something. I've got in. to say that being um, a, a heterosexual man, I think it's a pretty good idea as well. Actually. I, <laughs> Well, okay, so probably be a lot better off. Everybody's in. We can just <laughs> wrap up early and go home. We all already are at home. Okay. I was fine. just sort of thinking that, but as you were taking the, the bisexual angle, you're just sort of swapping your problems. Surely here, Rachel, it'll be a different set. Oh, that's my life. I'm always swapping my problems. <laughs> I mean, I do think that the lesbian parthenogenesis route is is more extreme. If we wanted to do just a stepping stone, that's why I would suggest the first stepping stone being selective ovulation. But if you want to go all out there, Rachel, I, I I'm with to... you in this new world order. If anything, I don't think you've taken this far enough. So I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just stretching it ever so slightly to, to okay. align with my exact values and then it's perfect. But there, there's at least a little bit of narcissism to this because it's not just the getting rid of men that you're going to have. It's the fact you're going to have clones of yourself. You'll be bringing up yourself as a child. I know. Wouldn't that be great? It's not exact clone, actually. Know. That's the cool thing. They're, they're able to sort of remix their genes to a small extent. So it's taking the same genetic subset, but shuffling the deck. So it won't be an exact clone, but it'll be some version of you. Do we really need more rituals? I thought, yes, a, of clone, course of course I thought a clone was a clone. What is this shuffling of the deck thing you're talking about? So because you're combining two eggs... And your genes get shuffled to different eggs. You're not combining two eggs. You're, you're... Yes, yes, you are. Isn't that right, Sally? Yeah. For this so, parthenogenesis. So our egg and sperm cells have half the genes because obviously two of them combine to make one. When two become one. I was even too young for that song to be out. So unlike plants where they do just kind of bud off and it is a, a pure clone, what a lot of parthenogenetic animals do is they will produce two of these half cells, these haploid cells, and then bring them back together. So if you've got like a a blue-eyed gene and a brown-eyed gene, it could be that one of those cells gets the blue-eyed gene, but also so does the other one. So instead of having your offspring have both blue and brown, it could be that your offspring gets both the blues or both the browns. So they're taking a subset of your genes. Obviously, no new genes are being added, but you can get ever so slight differences within that. They'll be made entirely from your genes, but they won't have the same 100% set of those genes. Yes, that, that would make you very prone to disease and all sorts of other things, right? So this is one of the problems with asexual reproduction is that 
you do end up getting a lot lower genetic diversity, which is fine if you're in a stable environment. But as soon as the environment starts to change, things become a bit more iffy. And that's also key, that stable environment that you're talking about. That's the reason why these lesbian whiptail lizards are found on islands, isn't it? So if they got to those islands in the first place, they know that they're in a place where they had the right genes to work in the first place. I'm aware just that a lot of these places where parthenogenesis has come up again and again and again tend to be islands in the equator. So we should start our lesbian New World Order as a trial run in the British Isles and we'll work out from there. Don't start a new world order here. That's the worst idea ever. Find a beautiful, find a beautiful island for us to start the lesbian new world order in, and um... we could start it in Lesbos. Exactly. <laughs> yes, That's now you're talking. <laughs> Sappho would be proud of us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Nice one. So, James, Rachel has bought into this. I've, I've really bought into this. It's going to have to be good. How can you compete? Tell us what your pitch is. Yeah, I can see, yeah. Well, I want to take us sort of back to some kind of fundamentals, I suppose. Rachel, I can see, you know, you're at home, you're comfortable, you're settled, but you are at risk. And you are at risk of head injury. Mm -hmm. There's enormous numbers of people suffer head injury every year. I had a a severe brain injury a a few years ago. And it's probably, numbers have probably reduced a bit because people aren't going out as much at the moment in the lockdown. But about every three minutes somebody will suffer a head injury and have to go to hospital, right? So it's a very, very common uh, thing, and it can cause all sorts of long-term disabilities uh, and mortality. And one of the problems is that over the years, we've evolved this amazing skull. So our brains are protected in this enormously strong and really quite heavy protective case. But the problem is that if you get a damage to the brain which causes swelling, it hasn't got anywhere to go. So the brain wants to swell up, just like it would if you bruise uh, your arm or your leg, but it can't because it's trapped inside this box uh, of bone. And that means that the pressure, the intracranial pressure in there, stops blood flow to other parts of the brain, 
cause a secondary injury, or it can push right on the brain stem where all those sort of uh, you know, primitive functions are, breathing and heart rate and so on, and kill you. So what I'm suggesting is that the next level of human should have some way of relieving that pressure. So if you get a bang on the head, the brain starts to swell. We have a little fold down the middle of the skull, which can just sort of pop open in order to relieve that pressure and give the brain somewhere to kind of swell into. Mm -hmm. Like now, the suitcases for when you've packed too much stuff. And you've absolutely. Got you've got an extra zip bit. around the side, don't you? Yeah, it'd be exactly like that. Yeah. And you would actually, it's good that you brought up the suitcases because it struck me when I thought about this that it could be an issue if you go in an aeroplane and half the, the coat. <laughs> so, so it would have to be, you know, we'd have to think about pressurizing air cabins a bit better to be able to cope with that. But, you know, normally the treatment would be to drill a hole in your head to relieve the pressure or sometimes to remove actually quite a big piece of the skull in order to give the brain somewhere to kind of swell into and get rid of any blood clots that built up. That's enormously risky. It's a major surgery, it's huge risks of infection and so on. Some people are left without their bone flat for quite a long time. So we, we, we get rid of all of that just by allowing our heads to get a bit bigger when we need them to. Is this surgery still done sometimes? It's very, very common to have a, a, a craniectomy or a craniotomy where to remove a part of uh, the head. Now that's... You probably can't see the hole in my head. I had a little hole drilled in my head, not really to relieve the pressure, but to monitor the pressure. So they inserted a probe through my skull to keep track of what was happening inside there because it's so dangerous if that intracranial pressure rises too high. Uh, they've really got to be able to treat it straight away. Uh, and I've heard one case um, of a guy who was being rushed into hospital really urgent, huge swelling in the brain, and they actually started to remove the piece of skull in the lift on the way to theatre because it's so important to do it very, very quickly. Wow. So if, if this is something which is so fundamental, and, and we know like trepanning, has, trepanning, drilling a hole in the skull, is something mm. we've even found in Stone Age human remains, Yeah, thousands of years. Yeah, there is evidence of that. How on earth did they discover that? Have you got any idea? No, we don't know. And we don't know whether that sort of trepaning thing was just to let evil spirits out or whether it was actually doing something mechanical on the body, of course, because we don't know anything about those people. Um, but certainly this process of drilling little holes in people's heads to relieve pressure goes back 100 years. Okay. Uh, the other thing that, that struck me as well, while, while I was thinking about this fold to let the head increase, but if we're thinking about pressure inside the head, the other thing that happens sometimes is you get hydrocephalus. So an increase of the amount of cerebral spinal fluid in the ventricles in the brain. And that can have the same issue, putting pressure on the brain and cutting off blood flow. But in order to release that fluid, we don't really want to make the head bigger. We just want to get that out. So I thought perhaps behind your ear, a little valve. <laughs> so if the pressure of that fluid builds up too high, you do what I'm calling a cranial sneeze. <laughs> and you just sort of squirt some of that spinal fluid uh, out the back of your head. I think that's a cranial wee. It could be a wee. It probably, I think if with pressure built up, we should get a rather than a trickle. I'd rather have a spurt than a trickle. If there, was such a, if there was such a thing as a cranial wee, that is what nerds would be doing on all the trees to mark their territories. <laughs> they would, they would. <laughs> oh God, just don't hope we get another mad cow disease though. God, imagine oh. the prions spreading through <laughs> cerebrospinal would. fluid as you're just sat next to someone on the tube and then, ah! Danger liquid yeah, squirting. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure I want a valve coming out of the back of somebody's ear as they're on an escalator in front of me. And um, who knows where it you goes. Want more of a trickle. Let's take a little bit more into this fluid because it's there for a reason. And our brains, I suppose, are held 
sort of still for a reason. Can you tell us more about that, James? Is there well, anything the brain we... isn't kind of fixed to the skull. It's kind of floating and bobbing around in this fluid, enclosed by membranes uh, in the brain. So the skull really is just a protective outer covering. The fluid that you're producing there helps keep things kind of lubricated and in motion, but we recycle that. So we're constantly producing new fluid and absorbing stuff. And it's when that absorption stops or gets interrupted that we end up with problems. So the normal treatment for hydrocephalus is actually to put a drain in your body. So you stick a pipe up, goes into the ventricles and it drains the fluid down usually into the abdomen where it can be absorbed into the body. I got sort of obsessed with trepanning a while ago and read a book about it and oh dear and it is <laughs> that's not an obsession you want it to is fascinating what they used to do with the wounds after uh, doing the trepanning so you make a crucial um but they make a they make a, a crucial insertion into this into the top of the skull so they make a cross shape and then they peel back the the skin and the skull and everything and they they then i mean i think they were doing it to relieve pressure and um and then there's all kinds of tinctures and rose oil and it's like making a risotto it's terrifying it's like oh you must put this much saffron and a bit of this and a bit of that on the brain uh, before you sort of close it all up so that it can heal and serve of a nice chianti yeah i mean it, it was really really particularly odd what i'm wondering is bits of your brain will expand if you learn new things when they like they've done tests on taxi drivers and found that they have enormous sections of their brain dedicated to maps and wayfinding and so on so could we not expand this slightly and have it just be that your brain can i mean maybe we have more than one area where it can sort of expand if necessary so that you can if you if you're a a really talented I don't know, linguist or something like that, you can have an enormous, what is the bit of your brain that contains all of your <laughs> language skills? I'm I'm struggling here to work out what that is. Rocker? Okay. Rocker and Wernicke on the left-hand side, the language sense. Yeah, so normally what happens, you know, the taxi driver study is classic. What's happening isn't your brain is getting bigger, but the area of your brain that copes with that sort of navigation still, it takes up a large proportion of the ah. brain. So it's taking over a bunch of other areas. But I like your idea of having an actual big head. Yeah. Where you literally could get, get bigger. Yeah, I quite like that. You'd have to watch with balance because heads are already really heavy. I, I'm out of a, a means of helping us out here, which is babies. Because, of course, aren't they, they have the soft spot, as it were. Their skull is not I was not just fully... thinking about that, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm, they do. you've got those, those fusion points. So rather than having bone all the way around, you could have more like a collagen type tissue in between. But I don't know yeah. how strong, like how strong are babies' skulls if you drop them on the You don't want heads? to poke them. No. No. It's a font- fontanella, I've, I've, isn't it? Is that right? I do remember holding um, fontanelle. my eldest. After, I remember holding my eldest after he was born and I could just feel my finger drifting into that little soft spot <gasps> and I had a massive moment of like paranoia that I could just love him too much and it would all go really wrong. Yeah. But you know, what you've got to get... do is, if you push too hard, leave the finger there. That, that's what I heard. It's a bit like the, the dykes in Holland with the little Dutch boy. Don't take your <laughs> finger out once it's in. <laughs> okay, so... Okay, okay. Are we really going to call it Brain Wee? That doesn't sound like a good title. Can you give it a better title for us, James? Yeah, we don't want the Brain Wee. We want a sort of a, a skull flap, don't we, really, to, to enable the head to, it, to expand. Skull flap. Skull flap. Mm. Or skull valve? Your valve one, maybe? Yeah, well, the valve was to get rid of that liquid. People didn't like the idea of being brain sneezed on. I'm happy to let that one go. But I would like to see the skull I mean, be able to increase its flat, volume yeah. a little bit. 
An expandable. Yeah, it's almost expandable like the bits, of, the bits of tar that you get on concrete motorways. You know, so when the the road expands in the hot weather, it can squash up those little bits. How? But when it folds over, how does your hair cope? Like, will we all have really weird lines in our hairstyles? Yeah, probably. But everyone would have it, so you get used to it when you. And sure, everybody's got awful hair right now. Look at me. I'm I'm like an Irish yeti at the minute. With <laughs> Does this exist anywhere in the natural world, James? Do you know of any? Not that I know of, no. There are, there's varying degrees of how thick and strong the skull is in different animals, but I don't know of anyone where the skull can actually change size. There, there might be something, again, which is slightly similar, because as you point out, James, of course, is our brains are the thing which makes humans humans, really. Like, they're massive compared to everything else out there compared to our body size. But I'm thinking, let's say, something like uh, woodpeckers effectively have shock absorbers to stop damage whenever they're they're pecking. So they've got like a sort of floating points connecting their beak to the skull. So it's well enough anchored to do its job, but also it has a sort of shock absorber built in. Maybe something like that rather than a way of preventing so so why cure when you can prevent? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I see what you say there, the kind of prevention. The, the difference is that we find ourselves in this weird world. You know, we, we, weren't, uh, we haven't evolved to travel at 70 miles an hour in boxes of metal yes. uh, and hit trees, which is what I did. Woodpeckers have evolved to bang their heads against trees, right? So they've coped with that. If a woodpecker suddenly found itself playing American football, probably going to be in a bit of trouble. I would watch so, that, though. <laughs> if we're going to have some sort of preventative mechanism, and it needs to be really broad-ranging, wouldn't it? Don't we get brain swelling from infection as well as trauma? Yeah, yeah you can, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then you wouldn't get... The benefits of having like the tongue wrapping around the brain wouldn't help you for brain swelling from infection. Uh, yeah, it'd be nice. If you had sort of meningitis or something, for example, that again could trigger the pop. Maybe we Give should those uh, meninges somewhere to go. Maybe we should just have huge skulls with the brain floating inside, like a woodpecker. That work. And you've got space for, if anything, damages the brain. No, because, because as James has been pointing out here, you couldn't do that because then it would be sloshing around. That would actually get you a different type of damage. It has to be fairly tight. That's why that mm. fluid is there. It's supposed to be pressurized at most times. It's only when there's expansion within it. Well, what can we pack the space with? We'll get some of that ask, insulation foam. Ask polystyrene peanuts. Yeah, polystyrene <laughs> peanuts. That's right. <laughs> they are biologically inert. Is that true? Could you, are they actually used in surgery know. anywhere? Though? I mean, oh, they're man. plastic, so I'm sure it wouldn't make that much of a difference. <laughs> I, I, I can go with that as a kind of treatment, but yeah, what we're thinking about is how we actually evolve the species. We don't want to have some intervention, do we, to make it happen? It's got to be a... Well, these, it can uh, be because we. One of the things we want to do is to offer you all of the budget in the world to implement this into into a, a small subset of humanity to test it out on. There might be some sort of epigenetic way of doing it. Then, if we we grab some of these lesbians on the island <laughs> in their pathogenesis and we we engineer some of their skulls with polystyrene, we might find generations later have the protection built in. Yeah, I can see that working. I mean, I, I quite like the idea of having an expandable brain, but like a collapsible coffee cup. Uh, I could just imagine, like the little zigzag yeah, corrugations at the side. Yeah, that's just what I was thinking. Yeah. And then if you cover it with skin so that most of the time you can't see it, I mean, you get terrible stretch marks when it does pop open, but you wouldn't die. So yeah, this is yeah, worth it. it. 
everyone gets the wrinkles anyway. And actually, if someone said, oh, we got the bad crow's feet, you could say, well, I had this accident when I was in my 30s. And everyone would be very understanding. It's not your fault. It's just your head popped. Or as time goes on, you can expand your brains, but your skin stays the same size. So it'll just, it's like stretching out the canvas oh, yeah. again and again. To reduce well, the people went to plastic surgeries, they just sort of twist it. and Yeah, like retainer braces, they'll just tighten yeah. it up a bit. This is maybe what Frankenstein's, no, not Frankenstein's monster. Maybe Frankenstein's monster and also Lurch from the Adams family had. Oh, is that Could what those be. bolts were? Well, that's yeah. why they both have enormously sort of tall... Big heads. Tall heads with, with uh, yeah, they obviously just had a bit of pressure on the brain there. I like this a lot. I think this is definitely on the shortlist. I'm wondering what to call it. I want it to be like a suitcase or like a coffee cup in that it collapses. So we could call it like collapsible cranium. If I was going to sell it, I called it expander skull. Oh, that's great. Lovely. Expander skull. We've got one suggestion in from Twitter, and that is uh, we have just one massive ear that goes right the way round our head. Now, what do you think, Rich? Right, one massive ear that goes right right the way round our head. So that this is about uh, stereo sound perception, is it? And how it would be improved. Yeah, but it won't work, surely. I'm not right in thinking that you need multiple ears, surely, for that. Well, you have to have, have multiple 3D ear vision. holes. Mm. Maybe you could have one outer ear, but you need lots of holes going all the way round. So why do you, why do you need? I think you need more than one hole. I think it's that you also need two sets of ears because ears exist to to kind of funnel and deflect. So if even if you had multiple holes, you just have them still coming into the same satellite dish, as it were. I think our ears are able to slightly hear differences based on the shape of the satellite bit, so to speak. Yes, um, which is again so, a reason why you need more than one, though. So having more than one, you have the distinction. But you, if you've got one really big one, because you've got all the folds and ridges in it, it could still divert the sound into different places. I mean, it doesn't help with binaural hearing. And it's just, yeah. What we're saying is it's a level down. I don't see how this helps at all. I think it would look weird. But yeah, one massive ear isn't on the shortlist, I'm afraid. We have one final idea, and that one comes from me, because this is part of time for a splice of life, the genes I would like to steal from Mother Nature's larder. I've pinned you all across a photo. Uh, Rachel, can you please describe this to our listeners at home? I mean, it reminds me of me, really. It's a poor mother of some description. It looks like a pine martin, if I knew what a pine martin was. It's an opossum. It's an opossum. Nice one, Sally. Spot on. It is an opossum. You're absolutely right, though. So it's an opossum with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight babies hanging off it. Now, the eight babies are unimportant for my suggestion. It's just that I thought this was the best photo I'd ever seen, so I had to share it with you. My pitch is, is about opossums and their abilities to survive snake bites. Opossums seem to have a peptide, which means that they can fight against venoms of a whole ton of snakes. It's not just one. And they're being researched to try and find a sort of universal anti-venom. And if you think this sounds unimportant, as of 2018, the World Health Organization suggested that it was a global health priority to try and deal with snake bites. It kills on average 94,000 people a year. Really? Yeah. We are very lucky in the UK. It's a lot. Mm. Yeah. To have no wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> to have only one venomous snake 
And our venomous snake is the scariest snake that exists and will run away long before you can ever see it. So I am struggling to kind of connect with this as someone who's been privileged enough to live in a non-snake bitey country. So, it, yeah, but we're we're looking to upgrade the whole species. This is a no, proper you're absolutely right. Global. Killer. What I'm saying is, I'm going to ignore the massive bias that there is in my brain, which just goes, "Yeah, it's fine. Nobody, you've you've convinced me with your ninety-four thousand a year. We should definitely put this on the shortlist." Okay, in that case, it's it's quite hard for you. Do you want to go for Sally's optional ovulation? We didn't go for Brain Wee as a name in the end, did we? What was it? Expand the skull. Expand the skull or Opossum Super Anti-Venom, so, which is what we call my auntie. It's very clear here what I'm looking at. So 94,000 snake bites a year is what the third one will solve. Optional ovulation solves all of womankind's problems and creates a sort of new yeah. lesbian super race. And, yeah. and Expand the Skull... James, any idea what the what the head injury stats are? It's huge, huge numbers. There's something like three million a year. Three million. And that would just be okay. that'll be just trauma. We're not even talking like the encephalitis yeah. yeah, and, and the meningitis and mm. all the meningitis and the other things that we talked about before. Okay. Well, I I think I know what I'm going to do. Snakebite is unfortunately biffed off the list because uh, three million trumps ninety four thousand. But um, oh, but look at that little opossum's face! Look at it staring at you with all its babies. We're not and getting it, rid no of the opossum. No longer feels special if it's no <laughs> anyway, longer the, the only one with anti. The opossum is absolutely fine. Um, that's that's not a problem. Oh, we're we're not in any way getting rid of the opossum. We're just not leveling up humans to have it on this occasion. Okay, so 69 million head injuries and presumably significantly more inflammations due to uh, other things yeah. as well. However, all of women is approximately 3.9 billion people. It is. So purely, I don't normally do this, don't normally go on the stats basis, but what I'm trying to prove to you is that this is based on maths, not just my personal predilection for a lesbian super race. So, But you're, you're also in that case going to be going from traumatic injury to really annoying couple of days a month oh you did not want to start that i'm just is, is that not, is that not fair though because we're talking about something which actually so it's not just traumatic injury it's death versus without medical intervention one in 200 women die during childbirth Think oh, about but we're not how getting... many unwanted pregnancies. But we're not are getting rid of that number. We're not getting rid of children. Importantly, you no, could we're probably... getting rid of unwanted pregnancies. Along we with are periods. eliminating all unwanted pregnancies with this upgrade, which is why I'm so keen on it. One of the reasons I'm mm. so keen on it. That makes that makes much more sense. And uh, endometriosis and all the other weird womb conditions where they're just like, oh, it's just period pain. And they just blame it on that and ignore the fact that actually you've got something terribly wrong with you. And the doctors are like, oh, just blame it on your period pain. But actually, again, we're going, to, we're going to dig deeper into this, though, because we're not, we are, the womb is still going to have a lining which will have to grow for, for the implantation when it happens. So we're not fully getting rid of those problems, surely. We're it's not actually fully getting rid of um, the lining of the womb, but it won't need to grow as fast as often. So the replication rate will be lower. And... Just in terms of the amount of pain that doctors typically ascribe to female problems and causes delays in diagnosis rates. So the diagnosis rate for kind of lower abdomen pain in women is much 
it takes a lot longer to get accurately diagnosed for women than it does for men because they typically go, oh, it's just period pain, take a paracetamol and go home. There we go. That, that, I mean, this is absolutely the most convincing case for anything I've ever heard. This is clearly the winner. I apologise. I apologise for it for the expander skull manufacturers or, or however that works. I'm quite happy to go with the lesbian super race. Great. So, Sally, um, yeah. we're, we're going to have to ask you in that case, because it is now your sole responsibility. Uh, we'll transfer the funds over as soon as um, we find anything. Thank uh, you. What is going to be your next step in this research? How are you going to make this happen? Well, I think the next step is going to be liaising with the Lesbos government um, so that we can have our starting ground. And then, yeah, we've got to work out some progesterone blocking gene and then we're on to a winner <laughs> in that case i'm just going to really quickly say if you're enjoying the podcast please leave us an itunes review make sure you subscribe to level up human so that you get every single episode and if you want to join our patreon community you can do with six exciting tiers of support patreon.com forward slash level up human excellent well there's only one thing left for us to say it's a big thank you to sally lepage James Piercy, all our wonderful listeners, this has been Level Up Human. Thank you and good night. That was Level Up Human, hosted by Simon Watt, produced by Rachel Wheely, and supported by the Physiological Society. For more information, go to leveluphuman.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.